You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, after Ehud died. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with ten thousand men following him. And Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Haroseth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him 
and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 701 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, August 31st, 2023. And that was a reading of Judges chapter 4, which we are going to dive right into. Stay tuned for the end of this episode where we will do a review of Nancy R. Piercy's The Toxic War on Masculinity. But... Actually, it's the best of all possible times to be talking about Nancy R. Piercy's book, which I just recently finished. Just this week, I finished reading it. It's the best possible time when we happen to be going into Judges chapter 4 with the story of Deborah, Old Testament leader in Israel, the first woman, really, who is presented as a leader in Israel. She's described as a prophetess and as a judge, and her interactions with a man by the name of Barak are definitely pertinent. They are definitely relevant to this business of how we express masculinity, men, how women express femininity, women, in our culture here in the United States of America, thanks to feminism, thanks to the women's suffrage movement and prohibition, and even abolition to some extent, you might even say thanks to the forces unleashed by the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Women in our context look up to, in far too many cases, Deborah as the girl boss they want to be. And we're told that that's what it needs to be. In the church, if you don't encourage young women to aspire to be Deborah, then you are a misogynist, you're a sexist against women, you are holding them back, right? What if all these girls, what if all of these women who are in positions of authority and who aspire and have ambitions to be in positions of authority over men and over their church and over their community and over our country, what if all of these women really have these great gifts from God and you're marginalizing the gifts that these women have from God, and therefore you're being irreverent and you're probably just feeling threatened, men. That's what it is. It's a really good time for us to talk about the toxic war on masculinity. 
the book by Nancy R. Piercy when we happen to be in Judges chapter 4 to talk about Deborah and Barak. And why I say that is because here you have an unusual exception to the rule. This is not normative. This is not even prescriptive. It seems to be actually a cautionary tale with regards to Barak. Now, it's great that God delivers his people from an evil and oppressive king. That's a good thing. So you might say, oh, well, how can it be bad that Deborah is a prophetess and a judge in Israel and she speaks to Barak the way that she does? But more to the point, Barak initiates that conversation on the basis of his not going out against this enemy unless Deborah will go with him. What's curious is there are at least two options, but actually probably three. One option is that Barak just goes and does it, right? See a need, fill a need. See an enemy oppressing your people and muster the troops and go out and fight that enemy. Just do it on your own. Well, if God doesn't go with you, That's maybe not the best of plans because they do have 900 chariots after all. These are iron chariots, and that's kind of like having tanks back in the day. You're going to have 10,000 men? Super. How do 10,000 men fare on foot against nearly 1,000 tanks? Those are not good odds unless you've got some really great tactics if you're just fighting on your own strength. Now, the second option would be what Deborah actually Posits to Barak, she asks, doesn't Yahweh go with you? Doesn't Yahweh go before you? Verse 14, she gives him a sharp instruction. And it's interesting here too, because I think of what Aaron is told when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the two tablets of stone on which the law, the Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Aaron is down in the camp. Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people say to Aaron, up, make us an idol. Make us a golden calf. (laughs) And what does he do? He gets up and he makes them a golden calf. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just tell me what to do. Because that's how this works, right? The people tell him what to do. And he listens to the people But wait a second, isn't he supposed to be listening to God? Why is he listening to these people? For that matter, when Deborah tells Barak, up, it's a sharp command. It's a sharp order. And what does he do? He gets up. Is it a problem that he gets up? No. Is it a problem that he goes out into battle? No. But why does Barak need to be told by Deborah that it's time to get up. Therein lies the question. And why does she need to say it to him like this, this impatient, oh, I'm just so done with you and you're dithering and you're dragging your feet. Well, there's two sides to the coin there. The one side is highly questionable whether it's appropriate for her to be speaking to him in this manner. For anybody to be speaking to anybody in this manner is not the ideal. I think we should all agree about that whether we're talking men speaking to women, women speaking to men, men speaking to other men, women speaking to other women, even parents speaking to children, it's not ideal. There's something wrong with the attitudes, at least one attitude, but 
probably more than one attitude when the commands are short, sharp, and so abrasive. Up, not even get up, just up, up with you. But she asks him, does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Why wasn't he just getting up on his own? Because he already knew the answer to that question. Why did he need Deborah to tell him that it's time to get up now? It's time to go down into battle against the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel. But that is to say that the third option is what he prefers. And something's broken in the expression of masculinity, the way that men in general, in this context, are relating to God and to their responsibilities within the family, within their clan, within their tribe, within the nation of Israel. Something's broken here that Barak would say to Deborah, wife of Lapidoth, a prophetess, a judge, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Time out. When did this become what it needs to be in order for you to be faithful to what God's called you to, that the women have to be on board? The woman, this woman in particular, has to approve. When did that become the thing? And oh, by the way, is that part of the reason why she has lost patience with him and lost respect for him? And isn't that part of the reason why we also would lose patience and respect for a man like Barak? What does Deborah say to Barak? She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. And that's sure enough. Sure enough. For Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You might think to this point, Sisera is going to be sold into the hand of Deborah, but it's not Deborah. It is the wife of Heber, the Kenite, a woman by the name of Jael. And Jael, her tactic is brutal but effective to dispatch this Sisera, this general. She takes a tent peg while he's sleeping, takes a tent peg and a hammer, and she drives it through his head. And not just drives it through his head, but also into the ground below. And then, thank you for confirming, Mr. Coroner, Mr. Medical Examiner. It says, and he died. <laughs> yeah, you think? I, I would hope so. I would hope that would be the end. So he died. But why is this the way that it is? Why is Barak, at the head of 10,000 men, needing to take not just orders from Deborah, but he wants her to hold his hand going into battle? Why is that? And is that not very similar to how we are right now? how we're being told we should be. What we're being told is the ideal. And if you don't like that, oh, now you're sexist. And now certain women will be very upset with you because you're downplaying the gifts that God has given to women. No, 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 no. The quick test for whether that holds any validity at all is whether you would ever in a million years with your attitudes, with your approach to these things, whether you would ever in a million years say the same thing in reverse about women to men. If I say as a man, I don't want women telling me how to be a man, <laughs> lecturing me, 
presuming to talk down to me about what it is to be a man, biblically, to where I've got to take it from them, you say, oh, what a misogynist. Not so fast, not so fast. When we say this thing in reverse, you don't say there's something untoward. If a man is lecturing a woman as to how to be a woman at length, ad nauseum, it's typical for us to say, you know, this really should be women telling other women how to be women. And that's appropriate. This was a conversation, at least I sent the messages out. I at least initiated the conversation this past week with regards to our upcoming year for youth group at our church here in Greeley, Evans. And I asked a simple question, which actually comes to me from my son, but then I was already thinking of it. I was already thinking, yeah, I wish it weren't that way, but I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to ruffle feathers or step on toes. I've got to be careful picking my battles, so to speak. Not to say it would be a battle, but it could be very easily if I said, I'm not comfortable with the moms who volunteer with youth group to be the ones teaching and leading the discussion for the high school and middle school boys, at least the high school boys. I mean, these are man-sized teenagers, man-sized men, or we want them to act like young men. We would be proud of them for acting like young men. If they're seniors, well, just next year, they'll be graduated from high school, and then there won't be any denying that they're men. And besides that, 18 is kind of an arbitrary number at which to say that a young man is now actually a young man and not just a teenage boy. If you want young men to think of themselves as young men, start treating them like young men and expecting manly things of them. Equip them for it, yes, but don't pander. Don't keep treating them like children and then be surprised if sometimes they act like children. Or if, on the other hand, they want to be men and they want to act like men, don't be surprised if they're frustrated when you treat them like children and then lecture them about how they're not being very manly. And what's even worse than that is don't treat young men like little boys. Don't treat them like children and then get upset with them if they aspire to be men. They should aspire to be men. Boys should aspire to grow up to be men. And again, this is something that is way out of calibration right now, culturally in the U.S., like it's not even close. Boys who aspire to be women are being celebrated. And there's this big kerfuffle as to whether or how we scale that back and undo that aspirational model. Boys should not aspire to be girls and they shouldn't aspire to be women. Period. End of discussion. That's not sexist against women. It would be sexist against men to say that the young men, the boys, need to be perpetually children so that women know what to do with them, or they need to aspire to be more like the girls, more like the women. But I initiated the conversation. Nobody's replied yet. I realize we're all busy, but that is no less true for me. <laughs> it's probably being chewed on that we have young men being taught and led by Moms who volunteer to help with youth group. And I'm glad that those moms have volunteered to help with youth group, but I think it's not the ideal that we would have the moms leading discussion over several high school boys. They feel uncomfortable, these young men. And to be quite frank, they should. If we're saying we would not ordain a woman to be a pastor over them in 
a year, two years, three years time, that wouldn't be appropriate. That wouldn't be biblical. Well, then why are we placing them under the authority of one of the moms in the church? However, kind, humble, patient, gracious, knowledgeable, wise, we've got a group of girls over there being led by a dad. And why don't we just send the mom over to that group of young ladies? Because the mom, with all her wisdom, with all her patience and kindness and sweetness, gentleness, ability to explain things, should be over there teaching the young women how to be virtuous women. And that dad over there, instead of just randomly being assigned because we don't want to divide up the boys and the girls, that dad over there should be over here leading the discussion for these young men. Because as my oldest son put it, when it's a dad leading the discussion for these young men, these young men get to feeling like I'm one of the men now. Or they start to think in that direction. They start to reason out and act out and practice being men. Whereas when it's a mom, when it's one of the mothers leading the discussion, they feel like they're children again. They feel like we're being treated like children. And that's the wrong message. But it goes both ways. If women have some great gift to teach or to explain or to set a good example, if they have wisdom and patience, in our day, it's argued that they should be a girl boss in the secular world, in the, unfortunately, godless way that we run most of our economy and society and our government, we say they should girl boss, essentially. They should be leaders. They need to be strong leaders. And then in the church, we say, see, well, Deborah was a leader, right? Yeah, but pay attention to the particulars. This is not prescriptive. This is a little picture, a little window into the soul of a people at this point. And this is part of why they're under judgment in the first place. This is one of the ways in which we might do what is right in our own eyes, every man, because there was no king in Israel, it says in Judges, while at the same time doing what is evil in the sight of God. Why is it so offensive that we would say to the older women in the church, you can apply those gifts that you have, if you have them, to teaching the young women how to be good wives and good mothers and virtuous women? It's implied strongly that children's ministry, for instance, women's ministry, for instance, is beneath the skills and ability of women who have supposedly so much maturity, so much wisdom, so much humility. Do they really have so much if they think that teaching children is beneath them? Ooh, what are you saying about the children? You're basically saying you don't regard teaching children as sufficiently robust challenging, rewarding, fulfilling, worth your time. Careful, careful, time out, flag on the play. Teaching children should be regarded as among the greatest honors and privileges that we would have. And what I mean by that is not let's jump on the bandwagon again with hero worship for public school teachers, as is far too often the case. I'm talking moms need to be honored. We don't honor mothers in our culture, in part because of the same societal pressure to have the atomized individual. But in the case of women, we say motherhood is beneath them. Being a wife is beneath them. That's all oppressive. 
That's not a woman reaching her full potential, so she should girl boss. And if it's in the church, we say, see, well, there were possibly some examples of deaconesses in the New Testament, Phoebe. She appears to have been a deaconess. And so therefore, we should have deacons and deaconesses. You're missing the point that the word deacon in the first place, and if it has a feminine version, deaconess, the word in the Greek is diakonos, which is to serve. Maybe it's self-serving that you want this title, you want this authority, you want this recognition. And why is it not enough for so many of these supposedly wise, godly women to raise godly offspring, to love and support their husbands as their husbands are doing the leading of the men? And yet what we find is, as we'll get into here in just a little bit, we find that just as women are being told in too many cases, see, you could aspire to being the CEO of some large corporation. You could aspire to being president of the United States of America. You could aspire to being a pastor in a big, important church in town because Deborah was a judge and a prophetess. But then the unspoken other half of that coin is we're telling young men, not just you could aspire, it's fine, right? If you end up being like a Barack, that's fine. But actually, by the way we're relating to young men and even mature men, the way we're relating to them is to say, we're going to demand of you. When we put women in positions of teaching and authority over men, which Paul says explicitly in the New Testament, he does not permit. And that's a big debate too. We don't even respect Paul's authority on these things if it gets in the way of self-actualizing, radical egalitarianism, feminism. But what we do is we say to the young men and to the mature men, both alike, you're going to have to be Barack. You're going to have to play Barack because we need to be relevant. We need to pay attention to what time it is culturally and have women in positions of authority over men and teaching men. You're going to have to be Barack here. What if I don't want to be Barack? Well, then we're going to call you a sexist. We're going to call you a misogynist. That's what. We're going to say you're a male chauvinist pig and probably abusive. If you get upset at all about that, by the way, we'll say that's just further proof. And this is why men hate going to church is a book that is sitting right on my desk in front of me right now. David Murrow's Why Men Hate Going to Church has picked up on this, but it's a very poorly kept secret. To say it out loud, hey, this is kind of a problem that a lot of churches have been so feminized that they are matriarchal. And which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which started this push? The men checking out or the women demanding and insisting, we're going to be the ones to tell you when to come out, when to go back in, when to make decisions, when not to make decisions. We're going to be the ones to tell you up. Did that come first? Or was it the men saying, I'm not going to go unless you go with me? Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Were you speaking to Deborah or were you speaking to God? Because you should have been saying that kind of a thing to God. That's actually who you should have been saying, I'm not going to go if you won't go with me. That would have been appropriate. But then what has just happened? If you're going to say that to Deborah, it strongly implies you might even have your signals crossed. You might have a certain high view of women 
this woman in particular, but women generally, which is reserved only for God when you have a proper view of things. It could be that you're putting Deborah specifically, but then women generally on a pedestal that they have no right to be on. Now, I say that, and as soon as I say that, and if you hear any frustration whatsoever in my voice, you may be quick to say, oh, but see, Garrett, you don't understand. Men are physically bigger and stronger and more aggressive. And when men go bad, it's so dangerous. Yeah. And that's why you want women, because you want safety and you want nothing to be dangerous. But actually, that can be strongly indicative of a lack of faith in God, a lack of contentment in how God made men and women differently. When men sin, it looks different typically than when women sin. Now, it's not to say men and women can't sin in exactly the same way, but in my experience, from my observation, even just from reading the biblical text, it's more typical that the same root attitude finds a feminine expression in women and finds a masculine expression in men. When men go bad, it looks like such and such. And when women go bad, which can't happen, it looks like such and such. And the problem with the man-hating is it obsesses over the problem when men go bad and even then goes a step beyond and denies that men can do anything right, can ever be correct, can ever actually appropriately have and wield authority even over their own lives, even over their own households. When that is being challenged, day after day, year after year, for generations now, that men can ever do anything right, that they can ever actually appropriately wield authority, have authority and wield authority without the women dictating to them when they're going to rise and when they're going to fall, when they're going to come in, when they're going to go out in exercising authority, when the men are not even permitted really, truly, to have authority in the home, We should not be shocked when we find that they are not welcomed. Men are not welcomed, generally, in positions of leadership in the church or in the community or in the state, in the nation. And you might say, well, but Garrett, wait, 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 wait. Now you're just being ridiculous. Hold on a second. There are lots of men who are in positions of authority all over the place. Yeah, come on. Come on. No, but listen. Which men, on what basis? And is it not the aspirational goal right now, increasingly out in the open, brazenly, to have the same number of women in positions of high authority in corporations, nonprofits, political parties, our government, the bureaucracies, denominations, churches? Is it not being told us that we need to have an equal number? Otherwise, women are being marginalized. Women are not being allowed to reach their full potential. Are we not being told that the pay gap is proof that there is still a long way to go? We still need to do more to help women be successful. Men have been too successful. Yes, as a matter of fact. Setting aside the kinds of things that men typically gravitate towards, how long they might apply themselves to those things, what impact young women getting married, having children, deciding to stay home with their children instead of continuing on building in their career towards higher and higher salaries and positions of authority in organizations. Setting all that aside, the big question should be, what's it all for anyways? 
Why did God make us male and female in the beginning? And why did God bless us and say, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? And oh, by the way, why do the girls seem to be doing so much better? And increasingly, we're admitting, albeit with very different prescriptions, almost always, we're admitting that there's something not okay. The boys are not okay. The men are not okay. Why are the divorce stats the way that they are? Why are crime statistics and substance abuse and self-harm and suicide statistics so one-sided, not just for men, but specifically for men who have grown up without a father figure in the home? And oh, by the way, why are there so many young men who have grown up without a father in the home? My interest here is not to blame the women because I think it's men and women who are at fault for this being the way of things, but it's not all men and it's not all women. And that is something of the secret to getting anywhere with this. Deborah is not equally to blame for every little thing that Barack does and doesn't do when he does it and why he does it. No, no. If she's accountable for her own way of speaking to him, her own way of relating to the whole situation, and aside from saying up, she appears to be behaving herself and doing what she's supposed to be doing. God has appointed her. God has put her in this situation. We should also recognize that Barack is not necessarily getting the credit. Something important to remember here is when women say we have to have these positions of authority filled by somebody in the church and the men aren't showing up, the men aren't willing to do it, they're too busy or they're not interested. The women very often, in my experience from what I've seen and observed and heard, going to churches all across the U.S. for years, having lots of family and friends in full-time vocational ministry, what I have observed is that very often the women will say, somebody's got to do it. And so we're stepping up reluctantly into this role. Like say, for instance, on a Wednesday night, if we have youth group and two moms show up and two dads couldn't make it, well, what do you do? right? You just not have anybody leading a discussion of six or seven high school boys. Well, you know what you could do? And this actually did happen a few times last year and it was fine. You could just appoint one of those young men who are in the group to lead discussion in their own group. You could do that. Another thing you could do, reading judges generally, is you could say, hey, God's working with some very imperfect, flawed people here and there. Maybe One of the takeaways should be, if you're willing to accept that it's less than the ideal, which there's a big if, but if you're willing to accept that it's less than the ideal for women to be in these positions like Deborah is, if you know that instinctively and you say, yeah, well then what are we signaling to the men involved as to how perfect they need to be before they're allowed to do anything? Is there a kind of perfectionism being imposed on men which we say is requisite, as in you cannot be allowed to be in any position of authority if we can find anything to criticize in you at all. But if we find a woman where it's not politically correct to ever criticize a woman for anything, if we find a woman who is willing, then we'll put her in that position because we can't find anything to criticize. And by that, we mean it's not polite for us to criticize unless it really rises to a very high level issue and problem with her. And then we're surprised, right? We do that. We put the woman in the position of authority over the men. We say it's all the men's fault because the men weren't willing to step up. Even if some of them would have been willing to step up, 
We refused them. We rejected them because if any of them had anything that was criticizable, we blamed them for it. And if the women had something that they were doing that was less than ideal, we blamed the men for that too. This is the game. This is how it's been working or not working, more to the point. And some men will sit under that and just say nothing and just kind of bide their time or find other ways to express their gifts. And oh, by the way, can we talk about that briefly? Why is it always that the women are having their gifts downplayed and marginalized? Oh, you're discounting the special gifting that God has given Deborah if you think Barak could go into battle without her. No, no, wait a second. Are you discounting the special gifting, <laughs> the special opportunity, how God admit, how God has made Barak, for instance, if you're insisting like Barak was, he's not going to go into battle unless she goes with him, unless she is there to tell him what to do, tell him when to get up, when to sit back down. All right, now you may speak. All right, now you may fight. All right, now you may do what God has told you to do. Meanwhile, the young ladies, if the young ladies are frustrated these days, it seems to me as though it's because on the one hand, they were told they should be girl bosses. And now increasingly, the ones who want to find expression for their own feminine strength and agility and speed and endurance in women's sports, they're being told, actually, we're going to call a man the winner. We're going to call a boy a winner of your sport that you were competing against other ladies in if he dresses up like one, if he says he wants the preferred pronouns, if he goes through some surgeries, perhaps takes some drugs, takes some hormones or hormone blockers. We're going to say he actually is the best. He's the girl boss and don't call him a he. Isn't that actually in some respect what we have going on when we're putting women in positions of authority over all the men and the women are going to lecture all of the men as to what masculinity really is. Hey, listen up. You guys clearly don't know how to be men. I'm going to tell you. Wait a second, though. You're not a man. Shouldn't we be hearing lessons on manliness and masculinity from, I don't know, a man? Where are the men? Who are we supposed to be aspiring to be if there are no men in positions to tell us authoritatively what it means for us to be men? There are so many big questions like that. It's hard to know where to start. But before we get into The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy R. Piercy, I want to actually take a step back and let's talk about modesty and let's talk about beauty and let's talk about a particularly feminine question that has to do with fashion, actually. Let's talk about beauty. And to get us started, let's look at Wikipedia the entry for beauty at Wikipedia reads as follows in the first three paragraphs, the introduction to the topic. Beauty is commonly described as a feature of objects that makes these objects pleasurable to perceive. Such objects include landscapes, sunsets, humans, and works of art. Beauty, together with art and taste, is the main subject of aesthetics, one of the major branches of philosophy. As a positive aesthetic value, it is contrasted with ugliness as its negative counterpart. One difficulty in understanding beauty is because it has both objective and 
subjective aspects. It is seen as a property of things, but also as depending on the emotional response of observers. Because of its subjective side, beauty is said to be in the eye of the beholder. It has been argued that the ability on the side of the subject needed to perceive and judge beauty, sometimes referred to as the sense of taste, can be trained and that the verdicts of experts coincide in the long run. This would suggest that the standards of validity of judgments of beauty are intersubjective, i.e. dependent on a group of judges rather than fully subjective or fully objective. Conceptions of beauty aim to capture what is essential to all beautiful things. Classical conceptions define beauty in terms of the relation between the beautiful object as a whole and its parts. The parts should stand in the right proportion to each other and thus compose an integrated harmonious whole. Hedonist conceptions see a necessary connection between pleasure and beauty, e.g. that for an object, To be beautiful is for it to cause disinterested pleasure. Other conceptions include defining beautiful objects in terms of their value of a loving attitude towards them or of their function. So here we have in a nutshell, a picture of how complex even the question of beauty can be. And I would refer you back to an episode in which I reviewed Edmund Burke's treatise on the sublime and beautiful a philosophical inquiry, if you will, where he says that the nature of beautiful things is to do with love. What we love is what we would call beautiful. We don't typically refer to men as beautiful, nor should we, but we would say they're handsome. And we would be more inclined to say that a very masculine man is equally a person to be sobered by and to take seriously and to respect because he is dangerous. We don't typically, and nor should we, regard men who are attractive, who embody the masculine ideal as beautiful, as in soft and pleasant. We say that such men are effeminate and rightly so if they lack the capacity to provide and protect. But then to say that they can protect is to say that they are more sublime like they are dangerous, as in if they're not capable of actually protecting anyone or anything from predators, then are they really manly? Or would we say that they're unmanly? We would say that they're unmanly. And there's an objectivity to that, even if some people want to debate about it. It doesn't mean that there isn't an objective quality to the ideal for men. By contrast, instead of being sublime, The most beautiful of women, we do not typically think of as being dangerous and capable of great violence to provide and protect. If they're strong, that's great. A woman can be strong and beautiful, but the kind of strength that is associated with feminine beauty is almost always the kind of strength that has to do with providing for children, loving a woman's husband. A woman can be very strong. She's doing work. She's doing physical work to help him around the home, to manage the household well. If they live on a farm, she might be out there helping to take care of the animals and gardening, and she's going to have a physical strength about her. And if she is not letting herself fall into disrepair, she's got a physical strength, but she also has a grace about her. She has a femininity. She has a certain softness about her. Her features are feminine because, in part, her children and her husband need them to be. 
And so also the man is not beautiful, but he's perhaps sublime, and we say handsome, if he's well-formed and he's strong and he's capable of being gentle. See also the ideal of a gentleman. He's capable of being gentle, but he's also capable of protecting and providing. Men and women should not be indistinguishable from one another. When you can't tell whether someone is a man or a woman, there's something abominable about that according to God's word. Objectively, even to there's something appropriate about our being repulsed by that and unnerved and nauseated by that. There's something wrong with our perceptions and perhaps they've been distorted. Perhaps our consciences have been seared and perhaps we've been trained up in the way that we should not go. If we say the ideal is to have women who look like men and women don't need to look beautiful anymore or they can, but it's totally whatever you want. But there is no such thing as beautiful. We're just describing our feelings as C.S. Lewis was triggered, so to speak, to write The Abolition of Man, reading a bit of curriculum, a textbook for schoolboys, claiming that it's all just emotions. We're just describing our emotional state when we say that we see a sunset and it's beautiful, or we see a mountain landscape and we say that it's sublime. You look up at sharp, hard rocks, far above you, thousands of feet above you, and you feel that sense of dread, but also awe. That is not beauty, not if we're using the right words, we're calling things by their names. That's sublime because there's a sense of dread. There's a sense of danger. There's a sense of this could be a good thing, but it also is a dangerous thing I need to take seriously. You don't associate those feelings with sunsets in and of themselves. You say they're beautiful. Do you dread the sunset? I hope not. Do you dread the sunrise for that matter? I hope not. Here I want to pivot. And let's set aside for a moment the question of beauty because we're talking in abstractions. We're speaking in generalities. Let's talk about feminine beauty in our context, in the West, in the United States, specifically in the year 2023, even more specifically, we might say our next focus is fashion. And let's talk about a particular fashion that is common to women and it's not common to men. Let's talk about attire for women that exposes the midriff, as it's known. And let's ask the question also of Wikipedia once more, what is the point, what is the purpose, what is the utility of women exposing their midriff with the blouses that they wear or the dresses that they wear or swimsuits that they wear or whatever, whatever it is that women will wear that shows off their belly. What is the midriff? Again, Wikipedia, in fashion, the midriff is the human abdomen. So here we're not distinguishing between men and women. The midriff is exposed when wearing a crop top or some forms of swimwear or underwear. Etymologically, midriff is a very old term in the English language coming into use before 1000 AD. In Old English, it was written as midriff. In the Old World, riff literally meant stomach. In Middle English, it was midriff with Y's, M-Y-D-R-Y-F. That's curious. The word fell into obsolescence after the 18th century. The word was revived in 1941 by the fashion industry partly to avoid use of the word belly, which genteel women 
considered undesirable in reference to their bodies as it has connotations of obesity. (laughs) That's just funny to me. It's very funny. In addition, belly was a word which was forbidden to be used in films by the Hayes office censors, for instance, in the 1933 film 42nd Street in the song Shuffle Off to Buffalo. Ginger Rogers is about to sing the line with a shotgun at his belly, but stops after the B of belly and sings tummy instead. And you might say, well, that's kind of weird. And I would agree with you. That is weird. Why I bring this up is because if you check out the Wikipedia entry for midriff and you scroll down through, you'll find that there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven photos that are featured in the Wikipedia entry for midriff. All seven of those images feature women wearing either a shirt or swimwear that exposes the belly or the midriff, their abdomen. Why I bring this up is because this being a particularly feminine fashion, even if you have an effeminate man who's wanting to wear women's clothing, we regard this as an article of women's clothing. Why do we do that? Quite simply because men are not going to have a baby. Whereas women might in the summer months, for instance, for example, find that their shirts no longer cover their bellies because their shirts, when they were not pregnant, weren't made typically to fit a pregnant belly. So that's one reason the midriff is fashionable, possibly. Another reason might be that a woman is showing off that she is not pregnant. She's showing off that she has a slim, trim waist and she's not obese. And typically, oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, if we just think about this a little bit more, we realize it's typically the women who are in good physical shape who feel confident enough to wear a crop top or some such like that. And why do they do that? To show off that they're in good physical shape. Why specifically around the belly region? I think in large part because even just subconsciously, they're trying to communicate that if a good man would come along and marry them or their husband, if she, the woman in question is already married, if a good man were to come along and want to marry her, she is in good physical shape to be a mother. I think that's what it is. I think she's signaling to the men or hopefully just her husband that she would be a good pick to have be the mother of his children. But what would we say? We would say, in our context, increasingly, young women don't want to get married, perhaps necessarily, and they don't want to have children necessarily, perhaps. And what they want instead is just to have fun. They want to be looked at and admired in a kind of passively disinterested way until they don't, right? Until they don't want to be looked at in a passive disinterested way. But that is to say, too, that women are getting their cues from men as to what they want and what they don't want in very many cases. And how I know that is because when you hear women talk about these things, it seems most often to be in relation to how men are relating. So for instance, men might gawk in times past, might do the wolf whistle thing if a beautiful woman, even entirely appropriately clothed, was walking down the sidewalk next to the construction area on some city block, 
And the women said, ah, we don't like being catcalled. We don't like being whistled at. We don't like men coming up to us and asking if we'd like to go get some coffee sometime or go out to dinner with them sometime. And then, oh, by the way, too, we don't like having to change the way that we dress. It's oppressive if we would wear certain clothing and then men would make aggressive advances at us that are not welcome, that we don't want. We don't like that. So don't do that. But then what do you hear as well? When women are fashionable and they are just doing what they are told by the culture and by the school system that they should do, when they're aspiring to be who they were told they should aspire to be as women, they're increasingly also complaining that men are not coming up to them and pursuing them. They're not being chivalrous. They're not initiating the conversation. Well, wait a second. What you wanted five minutes ago was for men to leave you alone and not bother you. And now you want, yes. Yeah, that that's correct. And also if you get married, sometimes that happens too. And it's not always the women who are indecisive and don't know what they want. Five minutes ago, you wanted this and now you want the opposite thing. Which is it? Can you make up your mind? Men do that too, but it looks different when it's men. We men do that with certain things, but it looks different. It's typically different things and it comes out differently and expresses itself differently. But then this is partly what we get when the men are not okay, are not all right in many ways. Some having been pounded into submission, they can do no right. And then also, oh, by the way, it's just as bad. It's just as wrong and mistaken and foolish to tell women that they can do no wrong as it is to tell the men they can do no right. Neither of those postures are correct. Both will lead to all kinds of strife and conflict and upset and loneliness and unproductivity. The women can be wrong. The men can be wrong. The women can be right. The men can be right. But it is going to look different. In both cases, when the men are right and the women are right, it's going to look different by God's design. Take it up with him. That's where you get the objectivity. When God says this is clothing that pertains to a man and that's clothing that pertains to a woman, don't you get them confused? God says it's an abomination for a man to wear clothing that pertains to a woman or for a woman to wear clothing that pertains for a man. We're not told exactly what that entails, but we are told that if the signals that men are sending are that they want to look like a woman, that's an abomination to God. And likewise, when the women are wearing clothes that they know are going to associate them with a man, make them look like they are taking on the attributes of a man and should be treated like a man, that's an abomination. Now, personally, I am less concerned with fashion trends compared with how concerned I am that we would say there is no distinction, there is no difference. We don't want there to be any recognition of the differences between men and women. I'm very concerned about that. And actually, I'm so concerned about that that I would sooner complain about men and women wearing androgynous clothing than I would men wearing a wife beater and some shorts to show off their muscles because they hit the gym every day and women wearing a crop top. And I know a lot of conservative Christians are like, ah, no. But listen, sometimes our censorious standard of modesty is just plain silly. Like for instance, a song in a movie from 1933, stopping just short of using the word belly in the context of somebody being threatened with a shotgun because you can't use the word belly in movies. The Hayes Code says, nope, can't use the word belly. We'll use the word tummy. Well, sorry, we know exactly what you're talking about. 
you skirted, no pun intended, you skirted the particular term that's forbidden, but you're still referring to the same thing. This is arbitrary. This is silly. Moving on. Consider with me a article at AOL.com by Dylan Thompson, updated September 20th, 2019. So we're going on four years ago, titled Free the Nipple Movement. Women can now legally go topless in six states. We've come a long, long ways from the Hayes Code, not allowing people to even use the word belly in movies in the 1930s. We've come a long, long way to now approaching the 2030s and increasingly states are saying to women, you don't even need to wear anything up top. You can just walk around topless in public. Women in six U.S. states, Dylan writes, are now effectively allowed to be topless in public according to a new ruling by the U.S. 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. The decision stems from a multi-year legal battle in Fort Collins, Colorado, which, by the way, is just about a 30-minute drive from where I live in Greeley, where a city ordinance forbidding women from going shirtless in public has now officially been ruled unconstitutional. I must have missed that part where it was in the Constitution that women can go around topless. I think the Founding Fathers generation, I think most of the generations actually between the Founding Fathers and us would be like, uh-huh. What? What? That's not in the Constitution. There's no constitutional right for you to go around without any clothes on in public. No, 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 no. Well, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals found it in the penumbra of the Constitution. What started as a small-scale fight has turned into a major win for the Free the Nipple movement, a global gender equality campaign that emphasizes women's right to choose how they display their bodies. The Fort Collins Law received its first blow in February when the Tenth Circuit originally deemed its anti-topless law unconstitutional. The court's ruling determined the law was based on negative stereotypes depicting women's breasts but not men's breasts as sex objects. And that's a quote. That's a direct quote. Now, Let's take a step back for a moment and put aside all of the talk of toxic this, toxic that, toxic talk of toxicity in relation to men. Let's just talk about ethics and let's talk about morality and let's talk about what the basis is for the laws that we have and what rights we have. Let's recognize that there is something untoward about saying There's no difference between men and women. There's something untoward about that. Now, you say there's something different about men as compared to women or something different about women as compared to men. And that does not mean you go banning certain forms of dress for women or for men necessarily. There's more work that has to be done than I have time to do in this episode to unpack how you get to the particulars. But let's just start from the premise that men and women are equal in dignity and in inherent intrinsic value in the eyes of God, male and female, he created them. So we have the same creator, both alike created in God's image. So that gives inherent dignity and worth to men and women alike. But let's also remember man was created first. Man, as a matter of fact, named woman. He called her Eve. He named her Eve. Paul, even in the New Testament, refers back to all this and says the man was created first. Why did God do that? Well, presume, assume, presuppose for a purpose, not randomly, not chaotically, and not 
to upset you because it's not about whether you're upset, whether you love that fact or you hate it. No, no. He created the man first and then the woman. And originally, speaking of dress codes, they were naked in the garden and unashamed. And then sin. Then sin came into the world and death by sin. And now we wear clothes because that was the very first thing that happened after they were ashamed. They noticed that they were naked. They put on fig leaves as clothing to cover themselves up. They were trying to hide their bodies from one another and from God. And what does God do? After confronting them, he makes them clothing from animal skins, kicks them out of the garden. Now we wear clothes for the most part, not always, not all the time, but for the most part, yes. And you fast forward to the law that God gives to Moses to give to the people of Israel. God says, man should not wear clothing that is apportioned to women. Woman should not wear clothing that is apportioned to man. We don't get the particulars, but we do get God establishing that men's clothing and women's clothing should be different. To get off into the weeds about patriarchy and oppression and my rights are being trampled on because you're telling me I should put on some clothes right now instead of strolling about naked. Whether I'm a man or a woman, it's just silly. Now, if you get a little bit more specific and people are saying you can't wear any clothing that offends or upsets me, now we need to engage. And again, I don't have sufficient time in this episode to unpack all of the particulars as to what our guiding principles should be there. I have written about it in the past. I've talked about it in the past. But for the purposes of this discussion, I just want to make it clear that male and female are distinct and different. Men and women are distinct and different by God's design. And God says, even when it comes to the clothing we wear, we should be wearing different clothes. Men should not be dressing up in miniskirts and crop tops. Now, whether women should be dressing up like that, that's a secondary question. But men should definitely not because that's clothing that is pertaining to a woman. And this is one of the things that you're not supposed to say in public these days. Because what's more offensive than a woman going around topless is if you object to a woman going around topless in public because you have biblical ethics, you have Christian ethics, you're reading God's word and you're saying, hey, this tells me what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what pleases God, how to love my neighbor. And they say, whoa, 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 whoa. A woman can walk around topless just like a man in these U.S. states. She has a constitutional right to it. They found that in the Constitution. But if you say, my Christian conscience, my reading of the Bible is going to have me expressing some concern about this, wanting to talk about the concerns surrounding this, you're the one who is going to be more likely accused of indecent exposure and even possibly violating somebody else's rights by proposing that no, we should put those laws back on the books, back into effect and enforce them that say you can't just go about naked in public. Indecent exposure implies that there is such a thing as decent exposure or decency at all. You can't have decency unless you have some idea of what would not be decent. For that matter, you can't have a sense of what is indecent if you don't understand what is decent, what is appropriate, what pertains, and for what purpose, to what end. What are we communicating? What are we signaling? Once again, you know, I've thought about this with Colorado being a battleground state for this women being allowed to go topless in public thing. And I've thought about what if I'm taking my family to the zoo 
or I'm taking my family to the mountains and we happen to pass by some campers or people at a festival or people hiking or fill in the blank. What if we happen to, as a family, be out and about and, oh yes, there's a woman with no top. What am I going to say? What am I going to say to my children, for instance, for example? And I've thought about it like, hmm, is that liable to induce my sons to lustful thoughts? And just speaking personally, I think to myself, I don't, I don't think so, right? Think back to Super Bowl halftime shows in recent years. And I don't remember which one it was at this point, but if memory serves, Shakira and Jennifer Lopez teamed up to do a halftime show at a Super Bowl in recent years. And we typically skip the halftime show because it's typically not family values. And that's not why we're watching. We're watching the football game and we like to see the commercials. Don't exactly want my kids listening to songs that are glorifying wickedness and a sinful attitude. I'm not exactly a fan of that. But even just getting some of the reporting on that halftime show in particular, and then having embedded video clips for certain stories that were talking about kind of what the halftime show had been, how it had gone, whether it was successful, whether it wasn't successful, what the buzz was about it in the days following that Super Bowl. Even watching just brief clips, I thought, man, there is such an aggressiveness and a hostility. There's nothing sexy about this. In fact, this is actually feeling more like sexual harassment. (laughs) This feels hostile. It doesn't feel at all enticing. I'm not provoked to lust after these women. In fact, I'm feeling revolted after a fashion. I think particularly in her younger days, Jennifer Lopez was an attractive woman. In my teens and early 20s, she was a very beautiful woman. Shakira, very beautiful woman, very feminine in certain ways. But then on the other hand, when you realize that this is all so in your face and it's not for you, it's for the people who make the money off of it and who get to inject certain ways of thinking, certain attitudes into the music. They use the music as a vehicle for engineering your attitude, your worldview, your attitudes. When you start thinking about it like that, it's like, ooh, I'm actually more concerned than I am excited. And I'm not excited at all. So it's not even hard. It's not even difficult to be more concerned than excited by this display. And then I thought, if we're going around Fort Collins, we happen to visit as a family, something to do there. If we happen to take a trip into Boulder or Denver and we see some empowered feminist woman, it's probably not something I need to worry about, that my sons are going to be provoked to lust. Now, what I might be worried about is that they're going to have a degraded view of women because this woman is not giving a good representative sample of the dignity and honor that should be afforded to women, but they're being undignified themselves. They're being ugly, actually. Very often, the kind of women who are championing this, their attitudes, their hearts, their minds are not beautiful. They're kind of repulsive, actually. They're very selfish, very self-absorbed. And by the same turn, what am I saying? All throughout this episode, what have I been saying for years? Men can be that way too. But why is the test for whether we should welcome women acting like this, whether men are acting like that? If it's not so great, then it's not so great, then 
that the men would be doing it either. Is it appropriate for men to be going around shirtless? Why do they need to be going around shirtless? I mean, you could standardize the laws that way too. You really could. You could say, we want the same law for men and for women regarding toplessness. And so the men are allowed to, we're going to tell the women they can too. Well, why don't you just tell the men, hey, put on a shirt, your own private pool, back of your house, if you're down by the river or the lake and nobody else is around, whatever, fine. Go, sh- go, go skinny dipping for all I care. Just please sidewalks, public parks. When I'm out and about with my family at a festival or something like that, if we were to go to one, which we don't, but if we were to happen to be in, let's say, Estes Park and they have some festival, some street fair, I wouldn't want some guy walking around topless any more than I want some woman walking around topless. Have some dignity, have some self-respect, have some decorum. And I realize I'm saying a lot of things here that probably sound like I'm being rather pig-headed and a busybody. Oh, it's none of your business. How does it affect you? How does it hurt you? My point is not to be hard-nosed, like I'm the standard, but my point is to say it's interesting in view of the book of Judges, Judges 4, the story of Deborah and Barak, and also with a view to The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy R. Piercy. It's interesting to me that the men behaving badly is used so often as the excuse for women behaving badly. Oh, well, the men are behaving badly, so we should have a right to behave badly too. Oh, well, okay, I see. I see, yes, you're just like the men behaving badly. Congratulations? Maybe you missed the point. Maybe the point isn't that you should be clamoring for your right to misbehave just like the men. Maybe the point is that both men and women in this situation should behave themselves. We should behave ourselves, all alike. If we could just start there, right? I I know there would be a lot to unpack. There would be a lot of particulars to work through. But if we could just start there, that would be quite a lot. Speaking of, let's get into Nancy R. Piercy's work, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. The publisher's summary at audible.com reads as follows. Why can't we hate men? Asks a headline in the Washington Post. A trendy hashtag is kill all men. Books are sold titled I Hate Men, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? How did the idea arise that masculinity is dangerous and destructive? Best-selling author Nancy Piercy leads you on a fascinating excursion through American history to discover why the script for masculinity turned toxic and how to fix it. Piercy then turns to surprising findings from sociology. Religion is often cast as a cause of of domestic abuse, but research shows that authentically committed Christian men test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. They have the lowest rates of divorce and domestic violence of any group in America. Yes, domestic abuse is an urgent issue and Piercy does not mince words in addressing it, but the sociological facts explode the negative stereotypes and show that Christianity has the power to overcome toxic behavior in men and reconcile the sexes, an unexpected finding that has stood up to rigorous empirical testing. Now, note this was published in Unabridged Audiobook 62723, that is June 27th of this year. 14 and a half hours long in the version I listened to. It has not very many ratings. It's only got 15, but it's got a 4.9 out of 5, which is very high. Let's talk briefly about even just the publisher's summary and what I found to be true as I read this book in the last week or so. 
In the second paragraph, she has this excursion through American history to discover why the script for masculinity turned toxic and how to fix it. That is to say, she seems very much to agree that there is this thing being called toxic masculinity. It's a thing. She agrees. And why is toxic masculinity toxic is more her question than are the people complaining about toxic masculinity complaining in good faith. Part of the reason this bothers me is because it reminds me of a lot of the academic and intellectual engagement in mainstream American evangelicalism with regards to Christian nationalism, where this term is invented, it's coined to create a wedge issue and to stigmatize a certain class of Christians who are wanting more explicit engagement on the political process and the social questions from their place of Christian faith and conviction. From what the Bible says, they want to engage mindfully, reverentially, obediently. What our laws are, what our habits are, what our norms are. And so then, next thing you know, they're being called Christian nationalists. And that is to associate them with white nationalists, but really the operative word here is nationalists for the left that doesn't want you to continue on loving America and they don't want you to be conservative. And this would be a very conservative thing if we went back to our Christian faith and convictions and the Bible informing our laws and our habits in society. That would be a very conservative thing. But here with toxic masculinity, as with Christian nationalism, we have this term that's been coined and it's being applied to the topic of how men express their distinct manliness. Who is advocating for toxic masculinity? Nobody. Nobody would say, ah, yes, I love toxic masculinity, unless they're being facetious, unless they're trying to get under the skin of those who are upset about it. Instead, this is a term that is applied to, as a pejorative, those who are perceived as excessively macho, into shooting guns and lifting weights and being aggressive. Aggressive debating, aggressive rulemaking, authoritarianism in the home, in the church, in society, in politics, a proclivity towards violence, or even, as is implied in some works, even among popular authors who are presented to the church by Christian publishing companies, the idea that a pastor, for instance, would practice and learn a martial art and compete, and that that would be an important part of his identity. Part of how you think of him is you think of him as dangerous, perhaps, or capable of defending his family and other innocent people with martial arts. That is being presented by some as toxic masculinity or dangerously close to toxic masculinity. So it's a slippery slope. Create this term, which therefore also creates a wedge issue among men particularly in the church, when you start factoring it in as a requisite that you must reject toxic masculinity or whatever is called toxic masculinity, and you must not even get close to something that is being associated with toxic masculinity, like shooting guns, lifting weights, studying martial arts. The trouble here is, I think, Nancy R. Piercy accepts that there is this thing, toxic masculinity, And generally speaking, 
her goal is to figure out how to stop toxic masculinity in a Christian way, how to root out or pull up by the roots, rather, toxic masculinity in the church in particular and in broader society, not whether this is a good faith complaint. And oh, by the way, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I don't like the term toxic masculinity. I'll use it just like Christian nationalism. If if that's the term we want to debate about, let's debate. Let's just try and have a cordial, polite debate. But I don't like the term toxic masculinity because it implies strongly that masculinity is itself toxic. And in fact, certain very high-profile celebrities have come out and said masculinity, testosterone, even, even just the hormone associated with greater degrees of masculinity among men is toxic. James Cameron, the guy who directed Titanic, for instance, Avatar, for instance, when he was trying to promote his latest Avatar movie, he came right out and said, yeah, I I realized years ago that testosterone is a toxin. And so men and boys should try and get that toxin out of their bodies because it doesn't do any good for us. It doesn't do any good for anybody. Nancy R. Piercy spends a lot of this book unpacking how toxic masculinity is actually a thing, and real Christians, genuine Christians, are trying to purge it from themselves and from those around them and from the church and from their larger sphere of influence. But it feels as though there's a lot of what she is expressing here that's churchy language feminism, as in the publishing companies are still doing the intersectional thing. They want a woman to be the spokesperson for American evangelical Protestant intellectualism so that we can prove that we are also not misogynists. We are also empowering women. We are also on the right side of history. She's a very intelligent woman, clearly, very thoughtful woman, clearly, but that doesn't mean she's right in the way she's tackling this topic. And part of the reason why I say that is because she spends a good deal of time towards the very end of the book explaining how men in marriage or in parenting frightening their wives or their children, even with a slightly raised voice or an upset look on their face, is a slippery slope to men beating and molesting their families, abusing their families. If the woman or the children in the home, in the Christian home, or even just nominally in name only Christian home, if they're ever afraid of the man, well, then that's a slippery slope to the man now abusing. Even just their feeling intimidated is a slippery slope because it could be that the man is trying to terrify them, trying to scare them into submission. And that itself is abusive. But then even as she's saying all that, when it comes to the divorce statistics, which she admits, she cites, she says 80% of divorces are initiated by women, 90% when we're talking about college-educated women. And her conclusion from that is not careful, and it's not thoughtful, and it's not helpful that 80% of women initiating divorces, 90% among the college-educated, is proof that the men's needs are being met in marriage and the women's aren't. And all of this is because of toxic masculinity, apparently. This book felt too close to Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumay. Too close. We're going to tell you a story about how you men 
liking movies about cowboys and Indians or famous battles in World War II, you associating yourself with manly pursuits like hunting and woodworking, all of that is potentially proof that you have been corrupted in your expression of Christian faith. And we're going to encourage you to get in touch with your feelings and to cry more. We're going to encourage you to defer to the women in your life more if you want to prove that you're not an abusive, tyrannical jerk. You know, she talks at one point about people who have conservative positions that they'll communicate. As Christians, they say, yeah, we believe the head of the wife is the husband and the head of the household is the husband and father. Yeah, we believe that. But then when you actually look at the healthy marriages, the healthy families among the very active, engaged, regularly attending worship services, helping in the church, volunteering in various ministries, when you look at practically how those marriages work or how the father relates to his children, basically it's progressive. These are actually functionally progressive marriages, progressive households, even though they are articulating a conservative view of marriage and the family. They say they're for patriarchy, but when the rubber meets the road, it's actually the husband is often as not doing what his wife wants him to do. And not all of that is bad, but then it's concerning to me because there's so much more that needs to be unpacked in what you're implying about the whole counsel of God. For instance, starting with the curse that God pronounces on Adam, Eve, and the serpent in Genesis 3, Nancy R. Piercy, I think not carefully enough, treats that passage as proving that patriarchy was a result of the fall. The curse on the woman was your desire will be for your husband, and she takes that to mean that the woman's desire will be to love her husband, to be affectionate with him, like things were in the garden originally, as equals, as there being no distinction between them in terms of authority. That's the good old days. That's what women want to get back to. That's what Eve is going to want, God says, and yet the curse will be, he will rule over you. And that word rule over you implies domineering patriarchy, which is a curse, essentially. That's what she is strongly implying. And instead of that, she says, men are commanded in the New Testament to respect their wives. When women don't feel respected, that's why they're getting divorced from men in 80% of cases, 90% among the college-educated women. It's that women don't feel respect. But wait a second. Are the women supposed to feel the respect when Paul writes to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Love and respect, they may be very closely related. Can you really say, for instance, that you love somebody if you are showing them disrespect time and again, if you're being rude to them, if you're dishonoring them, if you're trying to embarrass and humiliate them, can you really say that you love them? That's a fair question. But then love is distinct from respect. And oh, by the way, you can say mutual submission all day long, but then it's the wife in that passage. In the context of what Paul is writing to wives and husbands, he's not giving a uniform, identical command from God. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord in all things. Now, wait a second. Now let's think about it. You can say the kind of respect that a husband shows to his wife needs to be subordinated 
by his loving her as Christ loved the church. So here again, we have the association of the man with the authority, not just the sacrifice, not just the foot washing, but the authority of Christ over the church. Both times. That's the common denominator. And so the respect, if you could even say that, but I think it would be an odd thing to say that Christ respects the church. That would be an odd way to put it. So also, when we say Christ loves the church, he loves his bride, we're saying something very different, although it's not totally mutually exclusive with the idea of showing respect. What do we mean by respect? Really, that's what we have to come to terms about. We have to say, on the one hand, respect can mean you are deferring to the other person. You are indicating that you submit to them, as in you regard them as somebody who is over you, as in you regard them as having authority over you. Why are husbands told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, even laying his life down for her, except that we're supposed to be going back to all of the ways that Christ relates to his bride, the church, and even the motive and even the reason. The reason is because you love God. Christ submitted himself to death on a cross out of obedience to the Father first. So the first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the first and greatest. And then from that flows love your neighbor as yourself. But then when we come to this business of the wife not feeling respected, how much of the wife feeling respected or not feeling respected in our context is because a lot of young women for generations have been told they're supposed to be the ones in charge. They're supposed to be the moral guardians. I think Nancy Pierce gets very, very close to, closer than anybody else I've seen anyways, explaining how the industrial revolution taking husbands and fathers out of the home, sending them off to the cities and the factories changed the dynamic in the home. And now the women were going to step up. They were going to provide them not just pedagogy from the standpoint of reading, writing, arithmetic, but also teaching the children the Bible and teaching them catechism, taking them to church if dad couldn't make it. She explains how over time that turned into women being seen as the moral guardians of the home and moral guardians over the church and society and being seen as actually morally superior to men. And don't we talk like this very often, all too often? We say the men are physically superior to the women, but then we talk about the women as if the women are morally superior, spiritually superior to the men. How much of that is because a lot of the literature and a lot of the preaching has tried to cater to the women who are showing up. And it just goes with the flow on treating women, even by what is not said about women and to women, treating women as morally and spiritually superior. Men need to start behind the eight ball. Women, we're going to move them to the front of the line and show partiality towards them. Now, the husband is, Piercy is right, called to consider his wife. He is called to live with his wife in an understanding way, but living with her in an understanding way in no ways means he no longer has authority. He no longer actually is managing his household. And oh, by the way, it's not mutually exclusive. If my wife manages our household, particularly if I go up to Wyoming today for work, which I am going to Wyoming today for work, if she manages the household while I'm not here, 
who's managing the household? Am I managing the household or is she managing the household? Well, if you say it's only her, and actually, as a matter of fact, if you say it's always her and it's either or, well, then how do we have men who are qualified to be overseers and deacons? When Paul writes qualifications lists to Timothy and to Titus in the New Testament, very highly ranked is manages his household well. If you say, well, that's actually supposed to be women. Women are supposed to manage the households. Men are not supposed to be managing the households. Women are supposed to be managing the households. Not so fast. Not so fast. This is not an either or. You might as well say (laughs) there's a mutually exclusive aspect to God telling the man and the woman when he blesses them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, okay, I guess it's it's no longer the case that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all of its inhabitants. If God is telling the man and the woman to exercise dominion over the earth, the animals and the plants and all the rest, it must mean that God is not actually sovereign anymore. It's got to be one or the other. No, listen, if my wife and I were to go out and buy 40 acres of land, it wouldn't be the case that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, except this 40 acres that belongs to Garrett and Lauren. And so also, if you drill down farther and my wife and I build a house there, and then I go off to work, she's home with the kids, you wouldn't say, Garrett is the head of the household, or he was, but now it's actually Lauren. No, no. If she's managing the way that I've directed things to be managed, Paul would say that the wife should submit to her husband in everything as unto the Lord. If she's managing the household, it's very similar to Joseph being put in charge of preparing Egypt to survive seven years of famine after seven years of plenty. Remember back in Genesis, Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh that troubles him. And Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of preparing Egypt, preparing the stores of grain for seven years of famine. Now, who's in charge? Joseph or Pharaoh? Who has authority there? Who rules? Joseph or Pharaoh? That's a silly question. When it comes to the practical application, the day in, day out, the details, Joseph has been put in charge of those things, but he works and serves at the direction of Pharaoh. So if Pharaoh steps in at some point and he says, yeah, I don't want you to do it that way. I want this instead. And actually, I think I'm getting some reports that we should probably look into such and such as well, or instead, and let's pivot here. Tell me how things are going. I'd like to know how close we are to having enough food on hand to be able to ride out seven years of famine. That's kind of like what it is for the woman to be managing her household, but for the husband and the father to be managing his household. He entrusts his heart, for one, to his wife. He entrusts his children, for one, to their mother. He entrusts the household to his bride, but then he is still the one with authority. And I have to run. I have to go and get to work myself, speaking of going up to Wyoming. But I'll just say this. I couldn't shake the impression all throughout Nancy R. Piercy's book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. I could not shake the impression that as helpful as the history is, as helpful as at some points, certain observations and references are in clarifying exactly what people are objecting to and how these things came to be objected to that are being called toxic masculinity. At the same time, I couldn't shake 
that defining the problem is not the same thing as fixing the problem. And also, oh, by the way, if part of the problem is that Christian publishing companies are just chomping at the bit to give ample time and support and resources to a book like this, telling us men how we can be good godly men, but it's going to be from Nancy R. Piercy. You have to be careful that your problem is not being baked into the solution itself and your examination of the problem. As in, if the history Nancy Piercy tells is one of men being pushed to the side and no longer really functionally being the heads of their household, are men in the church, in Christianity, in America, in the West, being analyzed and assessed in many cases through the lens of thinking, you know what, that was probably for the best and let's just keep it that way forever. That men, husbands, fathers, functionally have no authority. Nominally, just like you can have nominal Christians, you can also have men who are nominally heads of their households. But functionally, actually, as a matter of fact, when the rubber meets the road, it's their wives and the mother of their children who get all the credit for doing everything. And it's not to say women shouldn't get credit, but it is to say men have been boxed out of having an aspirational model that is inspiring and that is secure, that is honorable. Now, it's interesting. When you go back to the office of overseer, when Paul writes about it, he says that the man who aspires to the office of overseer desires an honorable thing, a good thing. It's a good thing for you to aspire to this. Paul also writes in another place, not many of you should be teachers because we know that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. Nancy R. Piercy, in writing this book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, is not just presenting facts. She's also giving judgments and assessments. She's also teaching here. And what's concerning to me is so much of this teaching on how men should be, how Christian men should be, so much of this teaching seems to be uncomfortable, very uncomfortable with men told to be strong and courageous, like Joshua is commanded, be very strong and very courageous. There's an uncomfortability with the strength of men, the courage of men, and yes, the authority of men. We want it when it's time to open a jar of pasta sauce. We want it when it's time to fight a war against an aggressive and dangerous enemy. We want the strength of men when it's time to go out there and bring home that bacon. But then increasingly, as automation takes administrative jobs away from women, chat GPT, generative AI takes the place of admins and women all of a sudden are out of work and they're going to have to figure out what else to do with their lives. Increasingly, as remote work becomes an option for fathers, you may have men and women coming back into the home, working from home, homeschooling their kids and being something more pre-industrial in terms of the daily workflow and the daily dynamic. You may have that. And if we have that in the home, in the family, what I would hate to see is androgyny spiritualized where we say to the men, yeah, you know what? Centuries of toxicity out of you guys, the women are going to need to reform you. Yeah, we're, we're morally superior. We're spiritually superior. We're going to have to teach you how to be men again. That will not work. That will not work. The older women should be teaching the younger women. What would have been fascinating, actually, as a matter of fact, would have been a book by Nancy R. Piercy, more 
concentrated on toxic femininity. And maybe she's written that book, but that's not the one that caught my eye. That's not the one that caught my attention. Where's the toxic femininity analysis where you say, this girl boss business is bad news. This book seems actually to justify it because if the men weren't so out of touch from going off to the factories for centuries, if the men weren't so hyper-aggressive and materialistic and infantile from working around nothing but other men all day, well then the women wouldn't have had to have done all that they did with feminism and prohibition and women's suffrage and the rest. I will definitely be talking more about this in coming episodes, but for right now, I just want to leave you with this thought. A better word than toxic would be sinful. Toxic, to call masculinity toxic is actually to go right back into the materialistic and to say this is all just lights and clockwork. This is all just a social construct. Is there a social aspect to this? Yes. Is there a subjective aspect to this? Yes. But let's call sin sin. Let's say sinful men behaving in a sinful way, misappropriating what God has entrusted to them and what he has blessed them with in a sinful way, those men need to repent. And so also sinful women who've been given different things, different gifts, different attributes, different talents, just like all men are not given exactly the same number of talents or talents in the same places or gifts in the same places. Not all women are, but men and women categorically are given different talents, different roles. That's clear from the scriptures, from God's word. And if men say, ah, yep, I see that, we shouldn't be saying, ah, but we see that you're not perfect. And so until you have given up on everything we're going to call toxic masculinity, whether or not it's just an arbitrary social construct itself that we're going to say, yeah, put away the dumbbells, put away the martial arts, put away the hunting rifle, put away the football, put away all this John Wayne crap. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't read that in my Bible. I didn't see that in the biblical text. I have to put away all that stuff. I don't see that. I think you're being arbitrary just the same way that you're saying these expressions of masculinity are arbitrary. And you know what? If you're being arbitrary and so are these expressions of masculinity, then let's do dig into the biblical text. But I don't I don't think what we're going to find from my studying of it is that the problem is husbands not respecting their wives enough. I think what we're going to find is in all too many cases, the women just say, I don't feel sufficiently loved. And so I'm not going to respect my husband until I feel sufficiently loved and vice versa. The men saying, I'm not feeling respected. And so I'm not going to love my wife until I feel respected. And both alike might be equally to blame. And yet women will get interference run for them as they refuse to respect their husbands, all the while demanding respect when what they're actually entitled to, according to Paul's admonition to husbands, is love. And then we think we've accomplished something if we convince the men that they should sit and cry, sit and have yourself a good cry if you're not feeling loved by your wife. Wait a second. She's supposed to respect you. That's what she's commanded to is to submit to you in all things as unto the Lord. Don't sit down and have yourself a good cry because Jesus cried you are allowed to cry. Men, of course, of course, of course. That goes without saying. I just watched The Sound of Freedom night before last. I cried, angry and sad about what's been done to children, is being done to children. But you need men's strength to deal with that, to confront that. You need men's strength. And if we neuter the men, 
because we have a very feministic view of what Christianity is, and that becomes the new measuring stick. And the young men are going to be told to be more like the women if they want to actually be a good Christian. We're going to get more and more of what we've been getting, which is the men think there is nothing for me here. I'm told I'm supposed to provide and protect, but you're not making me stronger. You're making me weaker. You're telling me that his strength is shown perfectly in weakness, but then you're also scolding me if I actually get physically strong. And then you're treating me like I'm a threat and you're throwing me out because you're afraid I might use my strength for evil, but then I can't use my strength for good either. If you castrate and bid the gelding be fruitful, making men without chests. C.S. Lewis was exactly right about this in The Abolition of Man. We don't appreciate sufficiently what he was getting at in The Abolition of Man, but I got to run. Speaking of, more to come, but not for now. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.